0: Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week it's going to be the turn of Twisted Sister because I recently spoke to the guitarist Jay French to find out more about life, love, poetry. And also, he's got a new book out, which is... um, broken down into two parts. Part one is um, his life, how it began, off the path, and I want to rock. And then part two is Twisted Business, where he uh, goes through the, the letters of twisted, each one meaning a different thing, from tenacity down to discipline. Anyway, the book is titled Twisted Business. It's a classic check it out he's got an amazing life story as well um so look after several minutes of casual chat we got down to that rock and roll business of um well basically i was talking about tony robbins the great motivational speaker slight like life coach and um comparing his work with uh, jay french's and uh, this is where jay responds and from there on we just chat for the love of chatting
1: i don't think that that was the intention when i first thought about writing a book many many years ago, but that's kind of what happened. Yes. You know, it kind of uh, peeled itself out to be a, um, a real motivational guidebook, you know, and, 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 it, and, it, and not necessarily for musicians either. You know, it's for anybody in any business. So it works no matter where, and it doesn't matter if it's any part of the music business either, it works for every genre, but it works for everything in business and in life. So it has, uh, you're know, the first person to say that, and I have used that description uh so I'm glad you kind of caught that a little bit
0: oh okay yeah no it just seemed to be well I have to confess a couple of years ago probably more than a couple now I went to see the great Tony Robbins for a five-day workshop and you know got a lot out of it because I was I got to that age where you you sort of think you know I, I need a bit more guidance for what's going to be coming next in my life and you know frankly I'm not getting it from my friends and family and anything like that I could do with some uber sort of experience and um, you know I went to see the man and it was kind of amazing so and sometimes you need that guidance because from from reading your book you know you hit those kind of lows and it's like how do you get yourself back up from another kind of you know a moment where you're crawling in the dirt like a dog
1: well I, you know I used Tony Robbins to get out of one of those lows ironically enough um I talk in the book about working at a stereo store you know Um, after Twisted Sister ended, and um, I I was really bummed out. I mean, my wife at the time was an executive at EMI. She was making a lot of money, and there was no pressure on me to get a job, but um, I thought I was worthless. You know, I was sitting in my living room basically feeling so sorry for myself, and my wife bought Wake Up the Sleeping Giant, Yeah. and I read it, and um, there were a couple of tools in there I used, you know, to get me out of that rut that I needed to get out of. Everybody needs something, you know, to get them out of a rut. I mean, that that was one of dozens of tricks of the trade. You know, I used to, when I used to get the press, I used to read the obituaries in the paper. And I used to look for rich guys who died. And I thought to myself, man, if I could have spoken to that guy yesterday before he died and said, would you trade all your money to be 25? He'd say in a second, you know, and I would say to myself, well, I'm not dead. I'm richer than he is. He's dead today yes Money he couldn't save him so you use all these kinds of um things in your head you know these games get yourself out of it so and drugs weren't going to be one of them so that was it no
0: no drug drugs never never are sort of going to be the way the way to sort of hold you together in those moments are they really so when you when you started thinking about putting the book together i mean it's got, it's interesting because you you know it starts with you know sort of the biog of your life which you've gone through and that's kind of amazing and then you sort of brought it together with the the words twisted and so you've got a, a different sort of uh a meaning for each of your, your letters, which is, you know, tenacity, wisdom, inspiration, stability, trust, excellence and discipline. Do you see? I've been, I've been working on this, haven't I? So when did that idea come together, you know, for all, like how to structure this, you know, publication? Um,
1: well, my mentor in my speaking world was Steve Farber, who was my co-writer in the book. And I brought them in, in to help me focus the book. And um, uh, when I started doing my motivational speaking the stories I would tell became the focus of my motivational speaking engagements. And um, as the book was starting to evolve, it occurred to me that I was writing a bizwar, which is the first marketing tool I came up with, which was a business book in a memoir. You know I, It was like the word "romcom" is a romantic comedy. So I thought, I'm writing a business book in a memoir because everyone would say to me, what, "What kind of book is it? Is it a memoir?" Yeah. Oh, is it a book about management? Uh, yeah. Was well, it a memoir or is it a book about management? I went, well, it's everything. So it became a bizwar. So that was the first marketing concept in my brain um, was to call it a The um The next part of it, which was the twisted method of reinvention, directly uh, had to do with um, the result of a woman who wrote a book called Grit that was a bestseller a couple of years ago, and, and her whole thing was that grit, as a trait, was the single most important trait one could have to succeed in so whatever you know you needed grit, mm-hmm. which I guess you could also say you needed tenacity and you know and I, so I, I thought about it and I went that's nonsense you know that's nice and neat everybody wants one word answer these you know these days you know nice neat word but it's not the answer so I started writing down all these words that pertain to what I thought mattered to me. And I wrote down, you know, excellence, I did write down discipline, I wrote down trust, I wrote down tenacity. And then when I started to put the letters together, I thought to myself, my God, I could do this around a skeletal framework and call it twisted. And that would make it a good marketing uh, concept. So that was the marketer in me, coming up with a simple format, so that people would remember it. That's the whole point. When you do these speaking engagements, you know, you want to put up you don't want to put up like bullet points, you know, and, and and everyone just gets tired after a while. They really don't. You know, people, you know, if you start off your speaking engagement by saying, I'm not going to do PowerPoint, you get a standing ovation because nobody wants that shit. But Twisted is easy. It's just easy. Seven letters. And this is yes. what one of them means.
0: Yes. So was, was it kind of relative did that give it a lot more structure to think right I can really kind of see the beginning the middle and the end to this rather than sort of getting bogged down in trying to write this story you know which could be you know as you know probably in the last five or ten years there's been so many books coming out did that sort of feel like actually I can really kind of get a sense of this so I'm not going to have to keep rewriting it as I progress I can actually keep it quite focused.
1: Yeah, I needed to bring a co-writer in because if it was me writing and I'm a writer, I'm a professional writer, sorry. But but I you know, when you're that close to it, it becomes hard to um to 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 censor yourself, you know, and to say this is enough, this is enough, this is enough. So we did, you know, we did 90 hours of of interviews. And and Steve said, look, this is important, this isn't important. 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 Or shorten this up or lengthen this up, you know. So he brought a natural order because yeah. he himself is a professional writer and he's had bestsellers. And so I trusted his take on it. You now, Rosetta as a as a book company loved the idea of it because they weren't getting a typical rock and roll book, which is the same story over and over and over again. You know, musicians poor, musician struggles, musician makes it huge. And then, you know, drugs, alcohol, manager robs them. It's the same. I mean, really, it's just the same story. It's, <laughs> wa- it's wash, rinse, repeat, wash, rinse, repeat, wash, rinse, repeat. And you get sick of watching it because it's the same. fuck. And our story wasn't that way. Yes. I never, ever, there was no mystery to me. There was no mystifying where we, when we made money and we didn't make money. It was no mystery. I knew exactly what we were doing when we did it. I know exactly all the mistakes we made, why we made them. I'm not proud of them, but they're in there. And then when it all fell apart, I didn't sit there and go, hey, man, like, what happened? Like, oh, what happened to my house? You know, because there's, there's really three kinds of people on this planet Earth. There's the people who make it happen, the people who watch it happen, and the people who go, what happened? And most people go, what happened? And then there's a tiny fraction who watch it happen, and then the tiniest little sliver make it happen. And I always thought, I'm going to always make it happen, or I'm going to watch it happen, but I'm never going to go, what happened? I've never had to say what happened.
0: No, but it was quite, what's quite amazing with, with your story as well though is that it starts kind of so early and you you spend so much time in the world of rock and roll because there aren't that many people and I've done so many interviews who keep with it for that, that amount of time. They normally get sort of burnt after five or ten years whereas in your case, you know, you, you really have made it a life and it was a bit like Lemmy from Motorhead and David Bowie and obviously other bands of that nature but there are just some people who like, they're just very focused. They're going to keep that path. Whatever happens, they're going to keep on it. So you, you're one of the few people who have managed to sort of stick with it because it's a hell of a gig, isn't
1: it? It's a horrible gig. I mean, there's great parts to it, but it's a tough life. Um, and, and nothing could be a greater example of that than, the, well, you see these records behind me. You know, So my mm-hmm. office is full of these things. You know, so I've got about 37 of them. And one day I was staring at all of them and I thought to myself, you know, if someone showed me a picture of this when I was 25 years old and said, this is what your office is going to look like, I would have thought naively, I must be the richest guy and the most famous guy in the world. And oh my God, the stories this could tell. And now I look at them and I go, the price I paid for all of it was so high that, um, you know, I guess it was worth it, but it certainly wasn't what I expected. Yeah. It never was what I it, nothing was ever like what I expected. You know, going into it when I was 20, I was simply a musician. I had no designs on being anything else. I was just a, I was the last original member of the band. I was just a guitar player. So, I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know how that would all change. I didn't know how <laughs> watching the destruction of the band through alcohol and drugs was going to change my life and make me so anti-drug and alcohol. I mean, what a business to be an anti-drug and alcohol person in you know, rock and roll. Imagine trying to hire people and telling them, you know, I don't like drugs and alcohol. Imagine how that goes as a job interview. You know, I'm in the only business where, you know, if you think about it, if a politician gets caught in a hotel room with an underage person and drugs, they're, they're over. And if a CEO in a corporation gets caught in a, in a hotel room with an underage person and drugs, th- their career is over. And if an athlete gets caught in a hotel room, underage person drugs they're over but if you're a rock musician you you get found out in a hotel room with underage you know person and drugs they they name an album after you (laughs) they give they give you a grammy you know they make videos and they do movies of your life because you're the anti-hero we live in a we live a stunted emotional development world yes but and so i'm way too logical for that shit
0: yes but then the 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 amazing thing is that that sort of your 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 childhood teen period and then this kind of transformation in the 70s is so enormous isn't it from being living on the streets not quite living on the streets but you know this kind of hippie kid and then the hippie
1: street i was a street kid a street hustler in new york city well new york city there's a like in london there's an energy in london there's an energy in new york there's an energy in la i think if you grow up in some of these big cities in the world, you know, your ability to be able to manipulate things and and understand the, the ebb and flow of life is increased. And New York City was that way. But New York City, you know, to be a hippie in the 60s, in New York City was an extraordinary time. And then to be a druggie in New York City during the 60s was an amazing time. And then to be a drug dealer in Amsterdam in 1971, when that was the drug culture capital of the world, which I was, was an amazing time. But by 1972, the hippie flower power LSD groovy pot smoking world that I started out with became a heroin infested nightmare and people started dying and were murdered and drug deals. And I was almost murdered and I was, and I OD'd and all this shit happened to me. And it was like, Whoa, this isn't what I thought it was going to be when I was 15. You know, I, I need to save myself. And my best friend became a full blown junkie and my girlfriend was on her way to that. And they were storing their hypodermic needles in my house. And, um, and then I got robbed at knife point in my apartment by as I was dealing with, with some old high school friends. And I said to myself, you know, this, this is, I said, John, you've had a good five years of getting wasted and dealing and going to every rock and roll show in the world and seeing anything and traveling the world and buying guitars and And But if you don't get out of this now, you're going to probably not survive.
0: No, no. And,
1: and, and the irony of that is, what did I do? I became a transvestite rock musician. So I don't know how my mother felt given the option. Mom, listen, here's the good news. I've decided I'm not going to do drugs anymore. That's it. Oh, that's great. That's good. But I'm going to wear women's clothing and be in a transvestite rock band. Huh? So that 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 was my escape. So I escaped into that world. Now, you would think that the drug scene would follow me into that world. But it didn't, because that band, the first version of Twisted, didn't do drugs at all. They were just alcoholics.
0: Right. And
1: I didn't understand alcohol. I still don't understand alcohol. I don't drink. So I've had five beers in my entire life. In fact, the last beer I had was a Guinness in Ireland, in Dublin, at a pub, because a friend of mine said, oh, you're here in Dublin at a pub. If you don't have a pint of Guinness. So I went, Okay, That was my sixth beer in my entire life. Yeah, the only well. beer I had before that was a black and tan 20 years earlier when I was managing seven, days. so I don't drink. So I don't know anything about alcohol. So all of a sudden I'm in a band full of alcoholics and that band suffered severely, which is in the book. The book goes into great detail as to how the alcohol and the drug scene destroyed each version of the band and how my overarching desire to be straight um, continued to uh, reach into the job description of the band members, you know? so when D joined. I said, you don't drink and do drugs, do you? And he says, No, I hate them. I just don't not do them. I think anyone who does them is an idiot. I want you're my kind of guy. Now that's a rare find. Yes. Until I found Mendoza, my bass player. I go, Mark, give him a high. Never. I said, what? He goes, I think anyone tells that she's an idiot. I'm like, you're my kind of guy. <laughs> so, you know, like all of a sudden, you know, you're in a band that's straight and you hire these guys who come in and you fire them because they lie to you. Either they tell you they're straight and they're not and they get wasted and you fire them or they don't join the band because they're at least honest and saying, wow, man, I thought I was joining a band that had fun. You guys, you guys like run this thing like the freaking Jehovah Witness retreat. You know, I don't want to be in a band like that. And it's frankly, it's, it's tough to be in a band if you're into partying. As, yes. as straight as we were, because we just weren't into it at all.
0: So how do you know that transition? You know, during the 60s, we had the kind of the birth of, you know, like the, the British invasion with the Beatles and the Stones and then the Kinks. And then sort of 60, 67, it was the summer of love. But you're in in New York. How does that sort of, you know, you must have been right there on the scene at the time, but then you yeah. were not in California. So how did that sort of- Because you were hitting... New York
1: did the exact same thing with the Lower East Side and the Village. You know, the West the West Village, first of all, you remember Jimmy Hendrix was signed out of the Cafe Wa in 1966, that's on McDougal Street. You know, we had the whole hippie culture. Dylan came out of the, you know, the Village, the Greenwich Village. So we had the Greenwich Village scene. And then we had the fountain and 72nd Street in the park that became the hub of the Hippie Center hub in New York City. And don't forget the Fillmore East was open, which means that we could go see every band you wanted to see every week it didn't really matter every weekend you could see the kinks or you could see um, you know you could see or 10 years after or you could see uh jeff beck or J- rod stewart or you know the who every all these bands just kept coming in every weekend you know and and led zeppelin came in opening fire and butterfly and everything was three bucks everything was three dollars the griffle dead played all the time so as a hippie druggie new york city was beautiful yes it was great but New York had a dark underside which everybody kind of knows if you follow the velvet underground you know the dark side of New York you know New York had this thing that San Francisco did not have and LA did not have it's really dark underside heroin scene so when it converted over into heroin by 72 it got really ugly but in 67 it was all hippy-dippy flower power I was 14 years old when Sgt Pepper came out in fact I heard Sergeant Pepper at my friend's house a block away from where I live, which is where I grew up, which I'm talking to you from now, from my bedroom that I grew up in as a six-year-old. So I've been right. here all my life. So I heard, my, I heard Sergeant Pepper around the corner at my friend's house and I hadn't smoked pot yet. I didn't smoke pot till September of 67. And uh, But once I started smoking weed, it was off to the races. I started dealing instantly hmm started making money from dealing because it was easy. Listen, I told people, you know, I told people in 67, pot's going to, is the greatest thing. And now it's legal. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone's smoking pot. It's legal. And, you know, everyone can't wait to open up a dispensary now. Yes, absolutely. I I was 60 years ahead of my time.
0: Yeah. So when did, when did you sort of, you know, when did the guitar appear in your life? You know, did, did there, was there a moment where you thought, actually, I want to do that? Or were you just kind of happy being the sort of bit of a street kid, sort of hustling on the, on the sort of corners?
1: Well, if you're saying when did it go from uh, a pipe dream to something more real, mm-hmm. that was an evolutionary stage. First of all, I was like a million kids my age, saw the Beatles on television on February 9th, 1964. Oh my, God, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I want that. I don't even know what that meant but it certainly looked good. I mean, it certainly was more fun. My father's a jewelry salesman. My mother was a political consultant. Neither one of those pathways were the pathways I wanted. You see the Beatles on TV, you go, that's the pathway I want. Oh my God, you're 10 years old. So that's what did that. But then five years went by where I didn't do much. and It wasn't until I was 15, really, when I got my first real serious guitar that I started to really start to play. Yes. And the, the blues is what did it for me. Uh, this guitar player named Mike Bloomfield from a band called the Paul Butterfield Blues Band had a great right. effect on me. And then then quickly, uh, Clapton with the Blues Breakers album and Albert King and BB King, they quickly came. Like bing, 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 bing. And then, you know, then I'm 16 years old and I'm, you know, playing and playing and playing. And then when I hit 17, the film were So then you could see all your heroes every night. You know, you could see Jimi Hendrix, you could see Jeff Beck, you could, you could see all these amazing players come through New York every day, and it's like, oh my God. And if you couldn't afford three bucks, you saw them at the park, Central Park in the summer for a dollar, that's how much the tickets were, to see Led Zeppelin, or to see Jimi Hendrix, with a dollar. You couldn't afford the dollar, you didn't have to, because you could sit on top of this little rock formation above the skating rink and just look at it for nothing anyway, it was so loud. So this is what surrounded us as hippies. And it was- um,
0: Did you go to Woodstock?
1: No, I absolutely did not. And I'm one of the few people to ever admit I did not go to Woodstock. Now I had dinner last night with one of my best friends, oldest friends who did go to Woodstock. And we were in Bermuda for a month prior to Woodstock and came back to New York on August 16th. And he said to me, man, like let's go to Woodstock tomorrow morning. So he came by the house to take me, and I and I said to him, "Dude, did you see the weather report? It's going to rain all weekend." I said, "I'm not going to sit in the fucking field and get soaked." He said, "Well, I got no drugs." I said, "So buy some drugs for me." So he bought a couple ounces of hash and brought it up. And he, he meanwhile I'm home the whole weekend. It's pouring rain out. I'm laughing. I'm watching the news. Pouring rain. I'm laughing. I'm not there. I'm not there. Monday morning. Monday evening, the guy shows up at my door, covered in mud. And I said, "David, how was it?" He goes, "Dude." I was so fucked up. I don't know what happened, but man, Jimmy woke me up this morning because you know Jimmy went on twelve hours late. Yeah. he went on. He went on at sunrise on Monday. He was supposed to go on at 11 p.m. Sunday. So he said, "Jimmy woke me up this morning." I said, "Well, that's great." I said, "How was it?" He goes, "I don't really remember anything. I was on too much acid." So I mean, I mean, I could easily have lied and said yes. And isn't it funny? Four hundred thousand people were Woodstock, but but eight million people tell you they were at Woodstock. Yes, you know? know, and I didn't need to be there. I saw all those bands a million times anyway. I didn't need yeah. to see. I didn't, I didn't need to be there. So, it didn't
0: so, happen. but when you got to the age of eighteen, you know, and the end of the sixties and beginning of the seventies, and then sort of Hendrix and Joplin, and and obviously um, Jim Morrison dies, and you've, we've had Altamont, and and the Beatles are breaking up. Did it feel? you know, like for you, somebody who'd been so immersed in it and also at that age and, you know, the golden age where you just absolutely are so focused. Did it feel like the party was over or did you... Yeah. Did you feel a certain kind of, oh shoot, we've missed it? No, no,
1: no. I wrote an article for Goldmine magazine called Sunrise Sunset. And it was about the Beatles ending in 70 and what was going to happen in 71. Well, in 71, some of the greatest records in the history of rock and roll were released. If you look at it, the Beatles' last album, Let It Be, came out in 70, even though Abbey Road was the last recorded record. Let It Be comes out in 70. So what happened in 71? Jethro Tull comes out, you know, Elton John comes out, um, um, The Who's Who's Next comes out, Every Picture Tells a Story, Rod Stewart comes out, Rolling Stones. Um, I mean, I was in London the summer of 71, okay? I was living on Kensington High Street. Um, right, off, right off of, uh, I was staying at a, at a it called Fremantle House. It was a hippie. Con- it was a hippie commune right off of Kensington Church Street, down the road, down the street from the Kensington Market, which is five hundred boutiques. So you had can't you hear me? You had a um, uh, sticky fingers out yet. Who's next out yet. Every picture tells a story out. You have Aqualung coming out. You've got James Taylor, Paul Simon, a uh, tapestry by Carol King, Cat Stevens, Tee for the Tillman. You have some of the greatest music ever released ever in the history of mankind. The yes. litany of unbelievable albums that came out in 73 is mind blowing. So basically, you know, you were crushed that the Beatles were ending, but you got over it really fast because every five minutes was another ridiculous artist coming out. So the day I got to London, I mean, literally the day I got to London in 71, Chris Spedding was doing a free concert in Hyde Park that afternoon. So, you know, I had hitched a ride from Paris. I was in Amsterdam, hitched a ride all through Europe, got to London and wound up eating at the Spaghetti Factory and and uh, the Great American Disaster. I'm sure you don't even know what these places are, right?
0: No,
1: no. Wimpy bars were everywhere. Okay. Yeah. And the Great American Disaster was a burger joint, where the English waiters talked to you like they thought that you were from they they were from America. So mm-hmm. they were absolutely rude to you on purpose because they were trying to be like New York waiters. Right. So these are British guys, you know, and they had every they had newspaper articles of Great American disasters all over the wall, you know, like the the, the, uh, the, um, the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire, the Titanic, you know, all this crazy shit. It's called the Great American Disaster. And you went in, and they'd be blasting, can't you hear me knocking out of the restaurant? And you walk in, and there's a 20-year-old, you know, British guy going, what do you want, man? Because he's trying to sound like he's American, you know? You don't got that, man. Like that shit. <laughs> so that was a crazy summer, man. So that's how I got over that. If you want yes. to ask, but, th- but then you want to, on top of all of it, let's add another um, dimension. Let's add politics on top of it. There was a lot of politics involved at that era. You know, there was, you know, the war was going on, anti-war demonstrations, civil rights demonstrations, Bobby Kennedy, Martin Luther King gets killed in 68, Bobby Kennedy gets killed in 68. Um, my girlfriend was the great-granddaughter of Robert E. Lee, the Confederate wow. general. And she, I met her in Bermuda, and she decided I should be there, her boyfriend because she knew that would piss her mother off. Because what could possibly make the, her mother be pissed off than a New York Jew drug dealer? Oh man, I clicked all the boxes. You know what <laughs> I mean? I mean, I was a high school dropout, New York Jew drug dealer, like the worst combination of things, and a rock and roll musician. Yes. So she was my girlfriend. So, so that, you know, then that whole thing deteriorated into a heroin nightmare. So, needless to say. I survived it all. and was able to chronicle it in the book.
0: Yes, absolutely. But yeah. then, you know, did you, you know, because I know, obviously, with my, my sort of formative moment was, you know, the early 70s with Glam, with Sweet and Slade and Gary Glitter, obviously. But luckily, David Bowie was my first single and my first love. Did you, as you were in the UK at that stage, did you think, my God, look at Slade, look at T-Rex? I mean, were these people that were relatively new to you at that stage?
1: So here's the, it's a really good question. That's a great question. No one asked me that specific question. And that's a great question. So I will explain to you that little slice of time. Okay? Yes. So I'm in London, 71. And it's Rolling Stones, The Who, Rod Stewart, Move On Up by Curtis Mayfield was the song, the single of the summer, all that. Slade, T-Rex was just rippling and under the surface. And Bowie was under the surface. So the hippy-dippy, whacked out, early 70s was was still part of that you know old school thing that stuff did not exactly explode that it exploded one year later so to put it in context i come home in august of 71 no in september 71 the number one single in england was mungo jerry in the summertime mm-hmm. i think if i'm not mistaken i think it was the right year anyway i come home and the summer and the fall of 71, um, Superfly becomes a huge hit. And that album, Superfly, you know, Freddie's Dead, keep on yeah. pushing. that was a big thing. And then American Pie, the single comes out. Monster, monster hit, biggest hit of the year. As 72 rolls around, you're starting to hear Slade, T-Rex, Bowie. You're starting to, you're starting to hear it. You know, not yet, a couple of times on the radio. By the time June of 72 rolls around and I auditioned for Wicked Lester, which became the band Kiss. The first thing they said to me was, we're going to change our image and we're going to be like this band called Slade in the UK. And I kind of vaguely had heard of them, right? I vaguely heard of them. So I went out and I bought the Slade album. I got Goodbye to Jane. And, uh, and then Space Oddity hit, Yeah. okay? And then All the Young Dudes hit, and then Walk on the Wild Side hit. And it was all of a sudden, move over, motherfucker. Like, they pushed everything aside, at least in my world, in my New York City world. All of a sudden it was like, <sighs> and by September, the New York Dolls were at the Mercer Arts Center, and I went to see Bowie in September of 72 at uh, Carnegie Hall. And I walk in and I see Mick Ronson. And it changed my life. I said, I want to be that guy.
0: That was the That's man. what I
1: want to be. I cut my hair off, dyed it blonde, and, 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 and just wanted to be Mick Ronson. So that, yeah. was, my, that was my turning point. September, October 72.
0: Yes, that was always a Bowie always said it was kind of his Jeff Beck, wasn't it? Mick Ronson, you know. So yeah. um yes, it was. He he knew how to do it. But then you had obviously the other major anthem in my life at that stage was Alice Cooper. We had schools out, and then he did 18 as well. So that that again, you know, that incredibly, you know, annoyed the parents, it annoyed the establishment. You know, then you saw him on top of the pops. I mean, was that a kind of another moment in your life that that, that no. kind of changed?
1: No, I thought Alice was funny. You know, he was produced by Frank Zappa. I didn't know whether to take him seriously or not. I didn't know whether to take the band seriously or not, but they had great music. Um, so, School's Out was a monster, monster hit. I'm 18 was a monster hit, but, but Alice, theatrically, wasn't the thing that lit the fire. However, Twisted Sister, as it configured itself in 73, um, you know, played cover material. So played Bowie, Mata Hoopa, Lou Reed, Slade, and Alice because Muscle of Love came out. Yes. And, and Ziggy, and then Iggy, Iggy Pop came out, the Stooges albums. And all that started to tr- transform. Then all of a sudden, the Grateful Dead, the Allman Brothers, all the old stuff just kind of took a back seat. And we were 20 years old and young and, and beautiful. And girls love guys that look like girls, you know, and that was the whole, you know, Sweet came out. I was a huge Sweet fan. Oh, like God, massive. Yeah. Massive Sweet fan. Then became a gigantic I was always an Anglophile. If you go back to my record collection, you know, I have original EPs from the Kinks and original EPs, you know, I've got Arnold Lane from Pink Floyd. I was a, I was a huge Sid Barrett fan and a huge Anglophile fan. And, as, and I'm a Beatle, I write a Beatle column. So of course I have every Beatle record known to man, including every version of every Beatle record where it's Japanese, uh, every configuration of cassette and, and reel-to-reel tapes and vinyl and CDs and all that other shit. Um, that was, a huge, that was huge, but the, the new Anglophile with Sweet and Slade and all that was huge. Also, you know, I'll tell you who had a huge effect on, on the scene was Humble Pie. And they weren't glam, but they were very popular at the same time. And people loved the heaviness of Humble Pie. And don't forget, Sabbath was lurking around too, but these weren't glam bands. Yes. But the, Brit- the British scene was having an incredible impact. On the so, American scene. So,
0: how important were the New York Dolls at this stage to you? Because they obviously no, have-
1: I, only, only as a joke. Because I <laughs> thought they were, they were the worst piece of shit I'd ever heard, and and so I don't. I'm not part of the, the Dolls re- re- reverence of that shit. I knew the guys, and they. Let's put it this way: if they were a garage band with, in t-shirts and jeans, they couldn't get arrested. That's how bad they were. But they they look really good. So my friends were close friends of Bill and Syl then Billy died in England. Yeah. So the summer of 71, Billy died. And they, and they came to New York and, and Johnny Thunders, Johnny was a druggie from New York. He used to buy drugs from me in the park. You know, I kind of knew him. Yeah. And certainly as a guitar player, I don't think anybody took any of them seriously. Um, Johnny wasn't a particularly good player. He, but look, Johnny had a rock and roll attitude. I liked the attitude, but I didn't get off on the band. So I went to see him at the Mercer Arts Center the night. And there's a picture of me and David Bowie sitting together, because Bowie's sitting behind me. So it was he was in New York on the 17th of September playing at Carnegie Hall. So I saw the dolls every week for like four weeks at the Mercer. They had a they had a residency. And I went to see the dolls the first time and I was like, Jesus, oh God. Oh god. So I couldn't believe it. So I went back again and it was like, oh Jesus! These guys you you got get and so at some point some record executive walks up to me and goes, "What do you think of the dolls?" As I was walking out of the Mercer Arts Center, I said I said to him, "Do you want my honest opinion?" Obviously the guy came down to maybe sign the band, and I went, "They're probably the worst band I ever heard except they look amazing." I said so. If they ever learn how to play, they may they may be great. This is what I said. Okay. Yeah. So now let me be completely fair about the dolls in this case. So I at this point, at this point, I've seen them four or five times, at Mercer, trying to like them. Trust me. This you know, people are there. They're enjoying it. I'm desperately sitting there going. Why did I learn how to play guitar? If I needed to suck that bad, I wouldn't have had to rehearse. I wouldn't have had to practice, you know? Like, why am I practicing? To play this bullshit? Then the, the Dolls played the Fillmore East, December of 72. Now, did you see the Twisted Sister documentary? We are a Twisted fucking sister. Did you ever watch a documentary?
0: i watched a documentary where I remember sort of, you know, people like Lemmy talking about giving you a break in the Reading Rock Festival and, and all the yeah. gigs that you played and you just yeah, played. And, bars, and
1: right. Not anybody. Okay. In... The director of that documentary was a guy named Andrew Horn. Andrew Horn produced the dolls at the Fillmore. Right. I didn't know Andrew at the time. So I go to the film to see the dolls, you know, and this is now the fifth time and they put on a really good show. I mean, the place went like rock crazy. Kids ro- ran the stage flipped out. It was Eric and the magic tramps, teenage lust, the dolls. And the dolls were really good. And I walked out going, okay. All right. You know, they got their shit together. That's cool. Then I saw him. couple months later and they were awful then they came out to the hamptons to play a club in the hamptons because we were the house band at one of the clubs in the hamptons but it's a whole different vibe you know we were a a blue collar bunch of guys that like dressed like women but we were playing smoke on the water and sabbath and alice cooper we were covered material you know so the kids could get off on music the dolls come out in their little you know like tank tops and little shorts and their platform shoes, playing the album and they got booed off the stage, and, and, and I felt bad for them because I went to see them at a little... Imagine the Dolls playing an afternoon 2 o'clock show at a beach bar in Long Island. Yes. Could you imagine that for a second? Yeah. Could you even imagine the absurdity of that look? You know, with the Dolls, you think dark, night, village. You know, the grittiness of New York. Not the middle of summer at 2 in the afternoon in a bar on the beach in the Hamptons. Needless to say, they were not treated well. So I then saw them. You obviously never saw them because you're too young. Yeah. Right. Okay. So you probably don't know that Arthur Kane, the bass player, eventually couldn't play anymore, but they kept him on stage looking like he played. Did you know that? They'd probably
0: story and and did and somebody was behind the stack. Yeah,
1: not somebody it was a friend of mine, Peter Jordan. Right. He played bass and I went to see them at a club called Mr. D's and I'm going, I'm watching Arthur and there's bass going on and he's not playing. And I'm thinking how I walk behind the stage and the guy's a guy sitting on on an amp in the back. And that was a friend of mine.
0: (laughs) I was like Peter, you know? Yes. But you know, Malcolm Gladwell does his famous, you know, 10,000 hours, hours, which is kind of, uh, you know, probably sort of, you know, Kind of linked into some of you know the philosophy in your book. So obviously, in the sort of eight years of the eight, you know the seventies from seventy two onwards, you guys are sort of playing a lot. I mean, the band changes kind of formation quite a bit, but it's sort of 75. It really starts to sort of gel. Do you, does, do you at that stage, because you see, you know, the dolls and the whole New York punk scene, everybody's kind of getting record deals, you know, there's, there's these kind of guys from the UK called the Rock Cats, you know, the Psychobilly gang. They're sort of, you know, kind of the, the hip sort of the flavour of the month and all that, you know, stuff. Did you sort of get frustrated that you weren't getting picked up at this stage?
1: People say to me all the time, "Aren't you pissed off? It took so long to get signed." And I say, "No, not. We we took as long as necessary to get signed, to get good. So we played thousands of shows. And the book, uh, Twisted Business, which is my biz war, uh, I even print out all the shows we played, thousands of them. And that's how we got good, uh, to the point of Malcolm Gladwell." You know, I added up the hours we played and rehearsed up until the record deal. Just up until the record deal. Forget about it, after the record deal. But from 73 to, to, 90, to 82, we played or rehearsed in that 10-year period about 9,600 hours of performance time and playing. So that's how you get good. And then, of course, we played all the time, and that's how you get good. So we. So for me, doing over a, doing approximately 9,000 shows, I can safely make this proclamation. If you still suck after 9,000 shows, you're probably in the wrong business. <laughs> okay. Yes. Uh, but, but um, there, you know, there's, a, there's that cliche about insanity is doing everything, ex- doing the same thing over and over, and expecting different results. You know, there's that cliche. And I think that's the biggest bunch of bullshit in the world. Uh, excellence is what happens when you do the same thing over and over again, because you don't even realize what happens, but incrementally you improve. And part of my book is illustrating that. That's why it's so Tony Robbins-ish, because I explain what what the the TWISTED, Tenacity, Wisdom, Inspiration, Stability, the last two letters are Excellence and Discipline. And how did you become excellent? Because we were disciplined enough to become excellent, because repetition breeds uh, improvement. And we worked at it and worked at it and worked at it. So ergo, when we came to England, as a fully formed band that had already been through the wars and we were signed in England you know we went on the tube show and that's what got us signed on the tube show and we played the marquee and all the british journalists came down and said oh my god this is one of the greatest bands we've ever seen well, you know why because we knew what the hell we were doing that's why it wasn't new to us yes we knew exactly what we were doing but they, we came to england fully formed and without england's stamp of approval without Lemmy, stamp of approval without kerrang and sounds magazine and gary bushel and jeff barton and Dante benuto and malcolm dome these are the guys that made us back in those days because they championed us the same way that there was a certain group of critics that championed the dolls in new york yes they championed twisted sister here in england so that's why that's why our roots go back so so deeply in in England. You know, we played the marquee, the original marquee, many many times. And when people say to me, "What what are the best rec- albums you've ever made?" Why is it that the best recordings we've ever released are live shows from England? Just about every one of them: Marquee, Astoria, Hammersmith, Reading. You know, we bonded. Everyone in England got it. They understood who Twisted Sister was.
0: Yes. And the and the, I suppose as you sort of hit the eighties, you were sort of there was a sort of a perfect revival of sort of heavy rock really, wasn't there? As well. So you yeah, were sort you know, of you yeah, were there, you guys had right. the
1: new you had the new wave of British heavy metal. That was your thing. You know, that was the Iron Maiden Judas Priest period. And then there was and then you allowed a certain amount of American bands into that world.
0: Yes. You were, you were so so during the 80s, then when you thought once you got the deal and once things started to move were you able to handle that quite better than a lot of bands who I interview, who sort of have like the 12 month, 18 month honeymoon period, they get together, they sort of rehearse quite a lot. They get that single, it gets a bit of traction. Then, you know, the UK is tiny, isn't it? We have, but we have three weekly music papers. We have all these venues around the country. You know, it's a tiny place you can go from one city to the next really quickly. So you can get a tour together. So the word of word of mad spreads very, you know, like wildfire fire. I just wondered if, if you know, then you know, when you're there in the 80s, how you keep this going and sort of manage to navigate the next decade.
1: We had a lot of practice because we played the tri-state club area, tri-state club circuit in the New York area. And if you look at the tri-state club circuit and you look at England, it's about the same right. geographic space. You know, so we already figured out that game. Trying to break America is a different story because it's so big, and Europe is big, but we already knew how to do the the transformational movements that you had to do within a confined geographical space. And you're right about England. What what most people don't understand who don't go to England is that in the United States, we have three power bases. You have Hollywood in LA, you got Washington DC as politics, and you got New York for finance and culture, right? These are three bases, but in London, you have them all within four blocks of each other. You know, (laughs) you got finance, you got politics and you got entertainment and all, you know, in W1, W2. That's it. So you break big there, and everybody knows about it in about five minutes. And so that's the beauty. When we did the tube, you you must have watched the tube. Yes, absolutely. So that's what made us. So 8 million people watched the tube the night that we played the tube. And that was why we got our record deal, which is easily accessible on YouTube. You can go on YouTube, put Twisted Sister, the tube show, and you will see the show that got us our record deal.
0: Amazing. And then it was the Reading festival as well, which Lemmy sort of says, give them a chance. They'll they yeah. be fine. He actually did
1: that a month earlier at the Wrexham Festival. Right. In Wales. That was the first show we played with him. Wrexham. Yes. And and Lemmy came out and he went, All right, these guys are good. And I said, What did he say? I didn't catch that. He goes, these guys are good. <laughs> uh and Lemmy just became a champion for the band and and in a way like our godfather. You know, and, yes. then, and then he brought Pete Way in and Fast Eddie, and then when you're surrounded by Pete Way, and Fast Eddie, and Lemmy, and the press guys, what do they do? They love you, because you weren't Spandau Ballet, uh, you weren't, you know, Echo and the Bunny Man, like that was the antithesis of what those journalists wanted. Yes. You know, it was, it was really split. You know, you had, you had that Brit, early Brit pop, synth pop, human league, soft Cell. And and it was right. It was a very split culture back then. Those people did not go to heavy metal shows, and vice versa. So we became the champ, We became part of that anti BBC One group, except we had a hit single called "I Am My Me," which really tripped people up because all of a sudden we're on the we're on the same TV show as Culture Club, the same TV show as Mary Wilson, the same television show as as Human League. And it really kind of confounded people that we had a top ten single with a pop hit, even though we were the twisted sister, the bad boys of rock and roll. That yes. was a bit, that was a bit weird.
0: So, with with um, with your book, S, S is stability. So, with being in a band, how do you manage to maintain any stability when it when it's a fast flowing? You know, like there's a fantastic Hunter S. Thompson quote, isn't there? Which I'm not going to remember, but yeah. he talks about you know, the, you know, record. Industry. Being. The
1: record business is full of pimps, whores, and and you know, blah blah blah, and and but there's a positive side. Yes, you know? no way, the... but there's a negative side too. You know? <laughs> um, well, yeah, but I already knew there was a negative side to it. I'm a New York guy. I already read the story. So here's the thing: stability. early on, in, early on in the band, the S for stability. Here's the greatest example of what that stood for. Um, when you want to keep, a, there's a quote from Duke Ellington, which is actually my favorite quote in the book, and he goes. To keep a band together, you need a gimmick. My gimmick was to pay the band members. That was his, that was his <laughs> joke. You know, he goes, "That's too gallant." My gimmick was to pay the musicians. So I said to the guys in the band, "How can we keep a band together? How can we make sure that you don't need a job? And you don't need a job, and you know you can devote 100% of your life to this band." And we said, "Well, we need to make X amount of dollars. That was the key. Like, what is the salary we all need to make that guarantees 100% loyalty to this vision? That's the question." Yes. And early on, we came up with a number. And early on, I said, "Okay, if each one of us needs to make that, then let me add on to that the cost of doing business, the cost of paying for insurance, the cost of having a crew, the cost of doing this. And we came up with a base value of what we needed to make per night in order to guarantee loyalty to the band, plus have enough money left over to do demo tapes. Yes. Um, and so that's how we devised it. And the band members to their incredible, well, um, uh, um, how would I put it? to, to As a testament to their um, forthrightness and honesty, the band members said, as long as we can make X, everything, we'll, we'll do it. And so we built a framework in which we made that minimum salary for, 77, 78, 79, 80, 81, five years. We were able to guarantee each band member that weekly salary. And we had five years in which to figure it out and, and break out of it, which was what we did. So yeah. that's really what the stability was. It was creating a stable enough business environment so that you all you needed to worry about was the business of Twisted Sister. And there's other examples, but that's probably the greatest example of all. You know, yes. You have to realize too that when you're running a business, I don't care if it's a band. You know, You're when you're flying in a jet, the jet's most efficient when it's nice and smooth. And then, you know, there's turbulence. And let's say turbulence, mild turbulence, for a business would be a challenge. And worse turbulence is, is a crisis. And you need to learn how to handle challenges and crises before they turn into catastrophes and the plane crashes. There were so many instances in the band where challenges and crises came up, and we dealt with them one after the other after the other. And the band became comfortable in knowing that no matter what was thrown at us, we'll figure it out. So it didn't matter if our truck was blown up by a rival club owner. It didn't matter if the guitar player, if the singer pulled a gun out and threatened to kill the drummer in the early stages of the band. Um, It didn't matter if a band member died. It didn't matter if a band member was arrested for doing something stupid. Like we would figure it out. There was enough confidence to know that the band was stable enough that even if there was a momentary jolt in the business, we could figure it out. You know, whether our truck got into an accident uh, and our equipment got destroyed, uh, uh, you know, in the rainstorm because the, the roof of the truck blew open. I mean, you know, I, the stories are unending. Yes. The challenges are unending. And as they come up, you've got to deal with them. And if you deal with them enough, the band members go, okay, we'll, we'll get through it.
0: Yes. You like have any confidence. business. Yes. Right.
1: So people don't like to think that rock bands can be that um, practical. Well, back. I don't
0: know. They, they, well, no, but then there's a couple, aren't there, like you 2 and Ronan Stones and a few others who are just, who have got that something which is quite different. So how then, with your life, you know, from the, the young kid the, on the streets of New York to the 70s, 80s, build, you know, trust when so much of life is kind of people trying to, you know basically score, you know, deal, the, do a deal, you know, rip you off. You know, there's a lot of money in, involved. You know, often people don't realize what they've signed. How do you develop trust in such a sort of horrendous industry?
1: Well, if you all get fucked equally, then everybody can trust each other if they got fucked equally. So that's number one. I mean, uh, the, the record business is one of the scummiest business in the world. It's legal robbery. It's legal thievery. That's what it is yes and and uh, record labels just do it all the time you know record deals are awful and that's legal robbery. you know so they basically are telling you we're gonna take everything and uh and you're the only way you win is to last long enough to outlast the deals if you outlast the deals you win.
0: Yes, that's that's,
1: that's, the same way that a sports star or a movie star, your first couple of movies, you're not making any money. And if you happen to hit the right movie at the right time at the right situation, when you can negotiate, you hit the big time. And that's how you win. You know, a one hit wonder doesn't succeed like that. But a long term artist does succeed like that. So if you are in it for the long haul. You can make money if you're in it for the long haul um and then you learn the lessons that you have to learn and you survive them and that's the key is surviving that long-haul journey that's why this december will be my 49th year in the band that's kind of crazy
0: that is quite a crazy actually because the other thing that happened you know we have game-changing moments and one of yours was you know prostate cancer i believe which must have gained Throw another kind of curveball in in an already sort of busy life or kind of eventful life. I mean, when you get that kind of news, how do you deal with that on an emotional level?
1: Um, well, if I had gotten prostate cancer 30 years ago, I may have handled it differently. But I don't know. I handled prostate cancer the same way I handled my heart conditions. I had two heart operations. The same way I handled my daughter's eye disease. She has an eye disease that's leading cause of blindness among young girls in America called uveitis, and it's manageable. Um, what are you supposed to do? I mean, the first question you say to yourself is, do I wanna live? And then the answer is, I wanna live. Then you figure out the rest. If you're so depressed that you don't wanna live, then I can't really help you from that point on. But um, you know uh the myth the Disney myth that they teach all young girls is like happily ever after is a bunch of bullshit, and everybody knows it's a bunch of bullshit and it's it's an insult to intelligence to sell a, a line like that um because life is full of challenges and and we're we 're designed to love we're designed to lose we're designed to cry we're designed to laugh there's spaces in all that for all of us
0: yes well absolutely, but there's you know there's you know with with you know dealing with so much stuff, those, those health issues are the ones that often pull one up quicker than anything else. You know, there's, there's kind of people who annoy you, there's kind of horrible incidents where someone might screw you over, but there's kind of the health one is the one that is a, is the, is a very sobering moment, and that's often the test of a character and just how one's going to navigate that next moment.
1: Well, I think if you're told you got stage four um, pancreatic cancer, you're pretty much done. Okay? You are pretty much done. Or if you have s- stage four um, geoblastoma, you, I guess you're pretty much done. But there's a million things you can have that you're not done. You know, prostate cancer is a curable cancer. So, yes. you know, for all intents and purposes, I'm cured. So I'll die of something else at the end of the day. Um, but when you're given a diagnosis, what do you have to do with a diagnosis? You should learn everything you can about, you know, I talk in the book about um, dealing with traumatic news. Um, and, and the process by which I dealt with traumatic news is the, is the process by which the band dealt with with that kind of news, which is you kind of process it, you know, uh, you can always mourn the stuff. There's no pain in, in, in feeling the pain of it. And then you have to reflect on it and then you have to retool and, and then reapply. And that's what the band did with all of its demos over and over and over and over again. Every time we got rejected, we, we mourned the rejection. We reflect on the rejection. You know, when you reflect on it, you have to think Did the person who rejected you, was he an idiot or do they have something valuable to, to tell you? Yeah. And, Sometimes they're telling you the right thing. So are you smart enough to take that advice? You know, and then you, and we did this over and over again. We retooled our perspective and we reapplied. And and D was the creative guy for all that. You know, he's the one that wrote the songs, and the, and and was the big image push. So you know, I I kept uh, a I kept a business atmosphere that was stable, and allowed. Uh, for us to continue to try different things because D was the one that was coming up with those ideas. Yes. So you need that. But you can't have five cooks in a kitchen. You really can't. So the other guys in the band were unbelievably loyal and great musicians and could apply it. You know, but you look at the Rolling Stones, it's pretty much Mick and Keith, you know, and they push, they push it. They push Charlie, they push Bill, right? they push, oh, that's what you do. You know, in the Beatles, you probably had Paul was the we're learning now, was the catalyst guy. Yeah. He he was the one. You know, Lenin, I love Lenin, but maybe but he'll but you know, we now know that Paul's the guy that said, hey, hey lads, let's get to the studio. You know, so you always need one or two guys to, to do that. And and you have to have faith in them and you have to have trust in them. Because um, if they continue to suggest things and can think continue to move in a positive nature, that's how the trust thing goes, you know. And when the trust thing falls, things fall apart. And I talk about that, it fell apart for the band in eighty-eight yes they fell apart. the band broke up and and when the band ended i thought that will never happen again the band is over okay and mm-hmm. that was a big learning curve
0: how what were, what were you, what was your emotional state from the for, for you know for that period after the band initially broke up in 88
1: um well i was going through a divorce and uh, we were going to be sued, and me and Dee were going to be sued for a lot of money. So we went through a bankruptcy, and that was a bit tough. But as I say in the book, I already went through a much tougher period of time when I was 22. When my girlfriend left me, my, my mom died, and the singer pulled the gun out and the drummer and threatened to kill him in a bar fight, the original version of the band. That was traumatic. I went through a severe depression, considered suicide. That's how all the philosophies started to come up, you know, all, the, all the, um, the tools to survive these kinds of things started to lay themselves out in front of me. The tools started to appear.
0: And what stopped and, you, kill, and what stopped you wanting, you know, actually killing yourself in that state?
1: I didn't have the guts to do it. I didn't really have the guts to, but I was in such pain. I was in an enormous emotional pain incredible emotional pain mind-boggling emotional pain and oh man it was just the worst the worst the worst and i i wrote a song called can't stand still and there's a line where it says can't stand still for a minute there's too many memories in it you know it was emotional devastation for me yes Um, um uh and then i came out of the depression about nine months later and i realized when i came out of the depression that depression is, is curable. I didn't go to a doctor, I should have. I should have gotten medication, I didn't. I never went through that again. I always say to people, if you're, gonna, if you're getting depressed, go see somebody professionally and doing it. Um, but I started keeping a diary of my thoughts at my mother's funeral on December 10th, 1974. And that diary was kept for 15 years. I'd always go back to the diary and reflect on the diary. Always go back and reflect on it and see, how I survived it. And once I realized I got through it, I realized I couldn't get through anything.
0: Yes. Well, I, I know, uh, you know, Tony Robbins really likes the journal, doesn't he? And um, writing down and offloading that is kind of one of those kind of great sort of ways of processing, you know, emotion and having some reflection on it later on when you can sort of have a bit of distance from those times. That must have been quite horrendous, that period, though. I mean, to. It was. Have nine months of, of this sort of a life, which was only... Yeah,
1: and I couldn't sleep or eat for nine months. I lost, I got down to 149 pounds. I, I mean, it was awful. But after I got over that, I said, "You yeah, I can get over anything. So it never reached that bottom again. Because uh, I always had enough fail-safe protective devices to do it. So when the band broke up and, and I went through a divorce, I went through bankruptcy, I looked at it almost, I was laughing at the absurdity of it. Because I knew exactly what happened. It wasn't like, oh, my God, how could that happen? I know exactly why it happened. I detail it in the book, too. I know exactly why. And, uh, you know, then when the band got back together again, we just wanted to make sure that all the things were right this time. You know, and we get along great. So the, the two questions people say is do you, talk all, do you talk a lot? We talk every day because we license our music all the time. So we're always talking. And because we license our music, it allows us to have income from licensing our music because our songs, we're not going to take in I Want to Rock or two the most licensed songs in the world. Yes. We learned a lot in the business. We learned an awful lot in the business. So and did and and,
0: and and going through the process of the book, has that also been another journey? I mean was there much that you learned when you sort of got to the end of it that you had sort of thought, God, I didn't realize that but being doing this, especially working with the the uh, the other writer, did that help also sort of cement stuff and sort of put stuff into a a logic way especially because of the, the the twisted bit you know so that in the end it all kind of starts to make a little bit more s- sense or stability let me
1: ask you a question are you married or do you have a partner yes okay how well does this partner know you
0: very well because we've been together quite a long time so yeah okay. we, we, we've seen each other in good times and bad times okay
1: my wife has heard my stories for almost 20 years she's so sick of hearing them that she couldn't wait for me to write the book. So now if someone's at a dinner party, she'll say, just buy the damn book, and here's his email. And let's talk about anything else. (laughs) Yes. she's She's happier than anybody.
0: Yes. But, but I just wondered, did you discover anything yourself from doing the book? especially? No, with- um,
1: not really. At that point, I, I kind of, because I'd been with Steve for so long, and I'd done so many motivational speaking gigs. Uh, what what I marveled about in the book was the conversation I had with my brother that opens the book in which my brother describes my life in a short, in a, in a two-minute conversation that made me go, Jesus Christ, that's a fucked up life. I didn't realize, you know... All the ups and downs and ins and outs and the craziness, and so that conversation with my brother was more enlightening to me than anything else. Yes, you know, and absolutely. the book opens with that conversation where he says, "How do you run the life that you? How do you do what you do?" And I didn't know what he meant. And when he described this roller coaster ride of a life that I had, you know, as, a, as opposed to him as a school teacher, you know, just like moving like this, you know, but me, he just, said, "How do you do it?" And I said, "You know, I must have been born with asbestos underwear." <laughs> and he said what, what, I said, what do you mean? I said, look, man, you know, entrepreneurs are entrepreneurs, you know. And when you're an entrepreneur, you, uh, you know, you take risks. You take big risks. And the bigger the risk, the bigger the reward. But you also take huge falls. And you actually prepared for it.
0: Yes. But those, that, that early period in New York was, you know, being a hustler. Did that sort of, was that your apprenticeship that sort of set you on, on a very good sort of grounding for the rest of the life, rest of your yeah. life?
1: Yeah, for lack of a better, yeah, it was. I didn't realize it at the time. I was just trying to make money and sell guitars and buy guitars and buy drugs. But yeah, that Wheeler Dealer shtick, that ability to talk yourself in and out of issues. Yeah, that was a New York thing. I mean, I I talked my way out of two drug busts. I mean, that takes a lot of talent, you know. It does take talent to talk yourself out of stuff.
0: Yes, absolutely. And also to see, you know, because New York obviously had the whole Goodfellas vibe with the Mafia, and I guess that would have also been sort of tapping into the kind of venues and the sort of ownership of bars and stuff like that. So you must have had those kind of issues as well during that period.
1: Well, they're in the book.
0: It's all in the book.
1: It's all in the book. and I had a, I had a, a record company president threaten to break my legs, and we had to bring a guy in from one of those organizations to help. Like uh, negotiated truce, you know, like that kind of thing. It was right out of The Sopranos. You know, yes. It was right out of Goodfellas.
0: Amazing. I Amazing. mean, to
1: be, to, did you see the movie Goodfellas? Yes, many right, so times. Henry, so, Henry Hill. Oh, yeah. The character Henry Hill, he worked at one of the bars we played at. Can I, does that tell you enough?
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: He worked at one of those bars. <laughs> okay, so
0: my god you must just think i'm amazed to still be alive uh yeah
1: (laughs) well yes uh, but you know i live a very you know conservative life i have for years you know i I stopped doing drugs 55 years ago i don't you know i have a glass of wine every once in a while and and uh you know i do motivational speaking i'm not out there and i'm almost 70 so i mean let's be real you know um i had a good run
0: yes absolutely well look that, thanks ever so much i have to say the book is brilliant and i've really enjoyed sort of i mean i've only got it as a pdf so i'll have to buy a copy but um yes i, I do like these um motivational kind of self-help books that's basically you get to an age where your sort of bookshelf starts getting filled with sort of quite different publications really but yes tony robbins he's he's our go-to guy at times
1: yeah as well, thank you for that thank you for tying me and where in england are you norwich okay i you lived probably... in basildon for a while we had a house in basildon we stoke newington right my daughter lived in bath for a while you know my daughter's british so i spent a lot of time in england a lot i mean we lived there for a very long period of time my second wife is british and uh so i spent 17 summers in cornwall how's that
0: nice yeah very nice my 17
1: summers in Polperro, my friend.
0: Blimey! Well, there you go. It's good. You go. Um, thank you ever so much for your time, and um, yes, best of luck for the uh, for the book, and um, yes, the rest, the rest. But anyway, thank look, take you. care, and um, I'll let you get going. But anyway, thank you. I hope you
1: guys have Amazon or whatever you have there. But uh, Twisted Business uh, is available uh, through any uh, online source you can, and I appreciate your support. Thank you very yeah. much.
0: Take care. Thanks a lot. All Cheers. Right. Bye bye. Bye bye. And that was me in conversation with Jay or JJ. French, who's talking about his new book, Twisted Business Lessons from My Life in Rock and Roll. Lessons from, yes, just lots of lessons. So, um, yes, go and find that on Amazon and all good bookshops. It is a fascinating read. There has been a lot of books out recently, but uh, that's pretty gripping and what a story. Anyway, look, this has been David East or the C Eighty Six Show. If you want to contact me. For some nice reason, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. Also, yeah, all these have been archived. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Check them out. They might just change your life. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.